Okay, starting at verse 17. Pay attention and listen to the sayings of the wise. Apply your heart to what I teach, for it is pleasing when you keep them in your heart and have them ready on your lips, so that your trust may be in the Lord. I teach you today, even you. Have I not written 30 sayings for you, sayings of counsel and knowledge, teaching you true and reliable words, so that you can give sound answers to him who sent you? And then we're going to read Proverbs 23, verse 12. So if you turn your page over, it's in this like, second column on that next page. And we're going to start at verse 12. Let's just find it. Apply your heart to instruction and your ears to words of knowledge. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish him with the rod, he will not die. Punish him with the rod and save his soul from death. My son, if your heart is wise, then my heart will be glad. My inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak what is right. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. There is surely a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. Listen, my son, and be wise, and keep your heart on the right path. Do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat, for drunkards and gluttons become poor, and drowsiness clothes them in rags. Listen to your father, who gave your life, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy the truth, and do not sell it. Get wisdom, discipline, and understanding. The father of a righteous man has great joy. He who has a wise son delights in him. May your father and mother be glad. May she who gave you birth rejoice. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes keep to my ways. For a prostitute is a deep pit and a wayward wife is a narrow well. Like a bandit, she lies in wait and multiplies the unfaithful among men. Thanks so much, Laura. Do keep that passage uh, open, and there's a brief outline on the inside of your you notice sheet if you want to follow along and make any notes. Good morning, everyone. Have faith in God. Now, I suspect there's an awful lot of people in this room who would say that they have faith in God, indeed, in Jesus. That's why you're here. You're a Christian person. But what does it actually mean? What does it look like? I'd like to know the answer to that question too, wouldn't you? If you're considering putting your faith in Jesus, you'd quite like to know what that looks like. Is it an emotion, a feeling, perhaps a sense of peace or contentment or something like that? Or is it more mystical and spiritual than that? Is it an experience of God's presence or, or acceptance somehow? Or is it more intellectual? Is it a question of agreeing to various propositions, truth claims, about God and about his son Jesus. Well, I would argue that all of those things can be found in the biblical view of what faith is, but today we're going to explore another angle on what faith is, what it looks like and what it feels like. We've just heard a passage from the Bible book of Proverbs, and I wonder if you'd turn back with me to 22 verse 19 and read what that says. Proverbs 22 verse 19. 
22, verse 19. So that your trust may be in the Lord, I teach you today, even you. These chapters in the book of Proverbs from 22, verse 17 to the end of chapter 24 is a distinct section in the book. As you can see in uh, verse 20, the author, who's probably King Solomon, has written 30 sayings for a reader who we learn later in this section is his son. Now, in some printed editions of the Bible, if you brought your own Bible, you might have an edition where the chapters are broken down into 30 short sections. Not in our Bibles uh, today, but that's okay. And these 30 sayings have a very, very wide range of topics. We'll be hearing in this series about wealth and poverty, about anger and envy, about gluttony and drunkenness, about work and parenting, sex and war, treasure and honey. But here at the beginning in verse 19 is the headline and the purpose of all of it. It's all about faith. It's all about trusting the Lord's. Everything we're going to look at is going to show us what it means to trust in God, and it will teach us how to trust God in every area of life. You see, the Bible's definition of faith is not just about your emotions or your spirituality or even what you believe. It's also about what the book of Proverbs calls wisdom. Wisdom, if you want a quick definition, is the skill of living God's way in God's world. That's what wisdom is, I think, in the Bible. The skill of living God's way in God's world. And the Bible's contention is that if we have faith in God, if we trust him, then everything will change in every area of our lives. Not just our emotions, not just what we experience when gathered with God's people, not just in what we believe, but everything. So, If you are new to the Christian faith and you're wondering what it will mean to become a Christian, be warned. It affects everything, from how you work, to who you sleep with, to what you have for breakfast. It enrolls you in a training program where you will be taught the skill of living God's way in God's world. Now, it may be that you possess some of that skill already. One of the marks of the book of Proverbs is that lots of the wisdom in it feels just like good common sense, the kind of thing you might be able to get anywhere. In fact, the first 15 sayings of the 30 we're going to look at in the next few weeks are more or less identical to a collection that was found in the uh, the land of Egypt, written about the same time, possibly even before this was written. It's entirely possible that Solomon collected some of those sayings in Egypt, um, that he recognized the wisdom of the wise men of that country as something true and useful for all people. But Solomon is not just giving us common sense. He puts that wise teaching back in the context where it belongs, in the context of believing that this is God's world and living in light of that. It's only as those skills are rehomed as expressions of faith in God's that life starts to make sense. And we're going to see that over and over again as we go through these chapters. So if you're not a Christian yet, I hope you'll see that God is interested in all of your life and that a life well lived begins, as Proverbs 1 verse 7 puts it, with the fear of the Lord. That's my hope and prayer for you if you're not a Christian today. And if you are a Christian, if you've been going as a Christian for some time, I think these sayings will bring every part of our life under the spotlight of God's word and to ask us whether we really are living wisely or foolishly. Whether for us the message of Jesus has really got under our skin, 
whether it's making an impact day by day, whether we're growing in the skill of living God's way in God's world. But if you're you're nervous about any of that, if you're thinking that you're not sure whether you're up for having every single area of your life challenged, let me give you some good news as we start. Just turn with me to chapter 24, verse 13, towards the end of the section. 24, verse 13. And look at these words with me. Eat honey, my son, for it is good. Honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know also that wisdom is sweet to your soul. If you find it, there's a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. As Catherine was reminding us earlier, what we're going to see over the next few weeks is that the way of life that God calls us to in his word is sweet. It is pleasant. It is good. It is better for us than anything else this world has to offer. So why don't I pray for us as we begin this series, that that's what we'll find as we study together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we trust you when, it's, when you tell us that it is sweet and good. Father, we are aware that what we read today is going to challenge us. Uh, whether we are following you today or not is going to uh, bring your spotlight into the, uh, every area of our life and challenge us. And so we pray that we would be humbly ready to receive that challenge. And that as we read, our trust would deepen in you, especially as we see it fulfilled in our Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So as uh, Laura said, we're going to look at these two passages from the 30 sayings, the introduction in 22, verse 17 to 21, and that second section in chapter 23. And we're going to bring it together by considering how Jesus lived out this wisdom and what that means for us. So let's look at our first section, 22, 17 to 21. And the first thing that Solomon wants to say to his son is this, incline your ear to truth and trust in the Lord. Incline your ear to truth and trust in the Lord. Read with me again, please, from 22, verse 17. Pay attention and listen to the sayings of the wise. Apply your heart to what I teach, for it's pleasing when you keep them in your heart and have all of them ready on your lips. Every few years in our society, we seem to have a big national debate about education, don't we? About how we should structure or restructure our children's schooling. One education minister stresses the need for memorising facts and learning about our nation's history. Another comes in and wants us to learn critical thinking skills. Yet another says schools should be teaching life skills like financial planning. Another says it's all getting a bit too stressful and that we should be more about creativity and play than rote learning and exams. Now, there are pros and cons to all those approaches, and I know how many teachers we are having in the room today. I am not happy about wading into this argument, but I'm going to have to, because let me suggest that here we have Solomon, God's minister for education, giving us a vision of how we are to learn the skill of living God's way in God's world. It's a philosophy of education in four body parts. Our translation obscures this slightly, but each half of those two verses actually gives us a different body part. The ear, the heart, the belly, and the lips. Let me work uh, through that with you together. First, at the beginning of verse 17, the ear. Pay attention is literally incline your ear. Solomon is saying, bend your ear towards this. I think that's why in verse 19 he says, I teach you today, even you. I think it's his way of saying, hey, you at the back of the class, stop daydreaming, listen up. 
He wants us to physically turn our heads towards him, to give these words our fullest attention. And that's always the first thing the Bible calls us to do. Our God is a speaking God. His word spoke the universe into being. In Hebrews 1 verse 3, we learn that Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. In Ephesians 6 17, we learn that the word of God is the sword of the spirit. God's words are the fundamental building blocks of this universe. It's not just that they happen to be true, it's that they are truth itself. They define truth for us. And as we were reminded a few weeks ago in 1 Peter, all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. The word of God stood at the beginning of the world and will stand at the end after everything else has faded. After the ink has faded on every page written by human beings, after the rocks on which people have chiseled their opinions have crumbled to dust, and after every other mouth is silenced, God will still speak. And so Solomon is saying, look, listen up, incline your ear to God's word. Second, he says, apply your heart to what I teach. Second half of verse 17. In the Bible, the heart is much more than the emotions. It's the Bible's way of speaking about your inner being, who you are deep down, the real you. It includes your thoughts and your emotions, your affections and your will. It's, it's you. And Solomon says that as we listen, as we bend our ears towards God's truth, if we're listening properly, that won't just change our minds. It will shape who we are. It will change our affections, what we love, what we hate. It will form our character and change what we want to do. Sometimes here in Christian circles, the idea that prioritizing word ministry, reading and speaking and listening to the Bible is, is somehow all just too intellectual. That it treats us as though we're just brains on sticks, that it engages the mind but doesn't really do anything with the rest of us. But the Bible's view is that as we hear God's word, it shapes our hearts and that changes everything. We don't come to the word expecting just to learn a new idea. No, we ought to expect a profound change in what we love and what we want. The wisdom Solomon is offering is not just a bolt-on set of beliefs, but a teaching that gets under our skin and changes us deep down in the very core of our being. And that takes us to the third body part. The word translated heart at the beginning of verse 18 is not the same one as verse 17. It's literally the word belly. Take this word, says Solomon, into your stomach. That's a fairly common metaphor in the Bible for God's word. It's described often, as we've just sung about, and Catherine was uh, speaking to us about earlier, as food. That's why we call our student program real food. If you're a student, you never really figured out why. That's why. But what does that metaphor get across? What does it mean? What does food do for you? It nourishes you, doesn't it? You take food into your stomach and your stomach gets to work and breaks down that food and sending the goodness of it to various parts of your body, strengthening your bones, giving energy to your muscles, firing up your brain. But something has to happen first for that to happen. You have to chew. You have to take that food in, don't you? Break it down in your mouth, chew it over. And I think that's part of the metaphor here. Solomon is calling his hearers not just to listen to the word, but to treat it as nourishment, to linger over it, to sit down to it, to chew on it, to meditate on it. 
And that's true of every part of God's word, but it's particularly the case in the book of Proverbs. These sayings are sometimes complicated and difficult to apply. They can't just be obeyed like rules. They need careful thought and consideration to to know what it looks like to live them out. But if we do this work, if we take this word in and chew on it and meditate on it and keep it in our bellies, it will nourish and shape us so we grow in wisdom and character. So ear, heart, belly, and finally, lips. In the second half of verse 18, Solomon says that it is pleasing for his son to have God's wisdom ready on his lips. This is the fruit of that earlier work. All that effort in bending your ear and applying your heart and taking the word into your belly, having it nourish you, it means that then you are able to speak that word to others. The student, over time, becomes a teacher. Now, what's going on here is clearly much more than simple memorization. It's very good to memorize scripture and to have portions of it in your mind. I encourage you to do that. But it's one thing to be able to recite the Bible off pat. It is quite another to be able to speak truth wisely and well into someone's situation. Later on in the book, we read that a proverb in the mouth of a fool is like a thorn bush in the hand of a drunkard. Just imagine that for a moment, you know. It's a danger to both himself and to others. Even the word of God, when taken out of context and spoken at the wrong time and in the wrong way, is capable of doing harm. Remember how Satan quoted the Bible to Jesus in an attempt to get him to disobey God. And it is possible for us to hurt others by glibly or unwisely throwing Bible verses at them. On the other hand, if we've really dwelt on the word of God, if we've let it affect our hearts... If we've meditated on it and let it nourish us, we can become a wise teacher of others. In verse 21, look down there. Solomon says that a faithful student of the word can give sound answers to him who sent you. That is, he envisages that the son will be sent as a messenger, a go-between, what the Bible calls an apostle sometimes, to speak truth from one party to another, an ambassador who is trusted by his teacher because he's given sound answers to him to faithfully represent that wisdom to other people. So here is the learning objectives for today's lesson. Here is Solomon's curriculum in the wisdom of God's. Listen, love, savor, speak. Listen with your ear, love with your heart, savor with your belly, speak with your lips. We might be asking, though, or wondering, what has that got to do with trust in the Lord? Remember in verse 19, that's what Solomon says is the point of all this, that his son might put his trust in the Lord. Well, I think one of these ways, the ways this works is quite simple. It's that doing these things well is incredibly hard. It takes a lot of effort. Think about each of those body parts again. It is very difficult, I think, isn't it, to pay our attention to just one thing, especially when that one thing is God's word. Now, every generation has had that struggle. It was very hard in Solomon's day, largely because in an agricultural subsistence economy, people didn't have as much time as we do for leisure or as much access to the Bible as we do. But it's hard in our day for a very different reason. We are living in the great age of distraction. 
Our eyes and ears are assaulted every day by noise and stimulus and diversions and entertainment and trivia and communication and images and notifications and podcasts and streaming services and memes and noise. And so it will take a certain kind of ruthlessness on the part of God's people in our day and age to bend our ear towards God's word. To say yes to close attention to the Bible will mean saying a big no to lots of other things. And so that will mean trust. We will need to trust the Lord that it's worth turning our phones and televisions off, that it's worth doing the hard thing that Catherine was talking about, giving our best time and energy to listening to truth, both on our own and in our households and in the household of faith. It's hard. And so we're going to need to trust that it's going to do us good. What about the heart? Well, in 23 verse 12, just flip over there, Solomon repeats his teaching about the word with a slight variation. He says in verse 20, chapter 23 verse 12, apply your heart to instruction. And the, it's, a, it's a very different word in Hebrew, the word apply, quite a striking one to what we've seen um, in 22.17. It's a bit frustrating that it's translated the same way, but there we go. It's a different word. It means something like make your heart come in. Make your heart come in to instruction. If you've ever looked after uh, small children on a summer's day, perhaps you know instinctively what that means and why that's hard. They're out to play. They're having a great time doing all sorts of things, chasing butterflies and having water fights and eating slugs, and now it's time to come in. It's time to stop the play and come inside and get hosed down and sit up at the table for a meal. And you know that that's for the child's good. They need to eat. So they grow big and strong. The night is coming. They need to come in so otherwise they'll get cold and tired and miserable. But goodness me, they don't come in without a fight, do they? We sing the words of a hymn here. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Our hearts and loves and affections and our wills are frankly all over the place like little children on a summer's day. And so it's hard to trust God that it's worth the effort to apply our heart to the word, to come in from our play and get down to work. What about the stomach, that food metaphor? Well, which do you like best? A well-constructed, balanced meal of natural food with whole grains and lean meat and lightly steamed vegetables, or a big bucket of salt, fat and grease? Now, perhaps your tastes are more refined than mine, but I'm sorely tempted by the easy, ultra-processed, instant gratification hits to the pleasure centers of the brain. And don't pretend you're not. (laughs) When it comes to what comes into our eyes and our ears, our world will offer us an awful lot of fast food. I can't be the only person who's noticed that quite a lot of modern entertainment is increasingly referred to with the single generic word, content. Have you noticed that? That's what the social media stars and the YouTubers talk about, isn't it? They don't edit videos or produce documentaries or write stories. They simply produce content. doesn't really matter what the content is. As long as it gives the viewer the hit of dopamine and plays well with the online algorithms so that it gets more eyeballs on it and more ad revenue, that'll do. It's just constant. And so it's very hard to drag ourselves away from the KFC bargain bucket of content to the balanced and wholesome food of the word. 
Just like it's hard to keep up your New Year's resolution diet with leftover chocolate cluttering up the house after Christmas, so it's hard to keep chewing on God's word when surrounded by more immediate gratification, even though we know it's not that good for us. And finally, the lips. Most of us have no problem with talking. The difficulty comes when we're called to speak only after having listened to God's word. That is, if you think about it, the primal sin of the Bible. Satan came to Adam and Eve and whispered to them a lie about God's world and encouraged them to form their own interpretation of reality, to decide good and evil for themselves. You can be like God. This world is your Play-Doh. Make of it what you will. Don't listen to those in authority over you. They're probably just tyrants anyway. They're hiding something from you. They have their own secret agenda. They're they're, they're pushing you down so you break off the shackles, have the courage of your own convictions, stand up tall, be yourself, speak your truth to the world. You do you. That was the message of the Enlightenment, which has shaped Western civilization, and it's pretty much the plot of every children's film for the past 10 years. But Proverbs tells us back in chapter 3, verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. This is not a Play-Doh world, and we are not gods. As one writer puts it, Proverbs describes a carved world, a world with meaning and shape and purpose and structure, Structure carved into it, baked into it. A world which is designed to work with God's wisdom, not with our folly. It's a given world. It's not just raw material for us to do what we want with. And so wisdom is not something that we invent or we discover. It's something passed down to us. Something we learn from an older generation. Something we're told by our creator God. And so we need trust and humility to believe that we don't know best, that we need to listen before we speak. It's very hard, this. So why should we do it? Why should we incline our ear to truth? Is it worth putting our trust in the Lord and enrolling in Solomon's curriculum? Well, the second section we'll turn to answers with a resounding yes. We're going to see that we get to set our hearts on joy. And hope in the Lord. Set your heart on joy and hope in the Lord. Now, I will admit that at first glance, this passage seems to have little to do with joy. Uh, Let's read the first few verses. 23 verse 12 uh, over the page. Apply your heart to instruction and your ears to words of knowledge. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish him with the rod, he will not die. Punish him with the rod and save his soul from death doesn't feel very joyful, does it? This is about discipline and punishment. Not only that, but punishment with a rod. Let's not beat around the bush here. Solomon is calling parents to cause their children some pain. Now, that's very difficult to hear, isn't it? It's difficult because of the very real and awful problem of child abuse, where a parent deliberately belittles and hurts their children out of malice or anger or loss of control or self-gratification. Let's be absolutely clear. The book of Proverbs, the rest of the Bible, is dead against that. It is against all abusive wielding of authority. It promises strict retribution for those who abuse their power. And it promotes gentle and loving parenting which aims for the child's good. And yet, that gentle and loving parenting includes discipline. 
That discipline can take many different forms, of course, and it must change as the child gets older. And I certainly don't read in these verses that a, a literal rod is called for. It's a catch-all term, I think, for discipline that's a bit painful. And as Hebrews 12 verse 11 reminds us, all discipline is painful. Whether that's a short, sharp smack or going to bed without pudding or being banned from playing with your friends or being sternly told off, it's just not nice. So why does the Bible commend it? Not just here, but several times. Well, there's something we need to understand from the rest of the passage, which is going to help us think more widely about this idea of discipline. So let's, let's hold that thought and we'll come back to it. Because in this section, Solomon talks about three particular dangers. They're the dangers of envy, of gluttony, and of lust. Look at that with me. Firstly, envy in verse 17. Look down to verse 17. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. There's surely a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. Verse 19 tells about gluttony. Listen, my son, and be wise. Keep your heart on the right path. Do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat, for drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them in rags. And then there is lust in verse 26. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes keep to my ways, for a prostitute is a deep pit and a wayward wife is a narrow well. Like a bandit, she lies in wait and multiplies the unfaithful among men. Don't be envious, don't eat and drink too much, and don't give in to the offer of illicit sex. Now, we might think it's perhaps not at all surprising that the Bible speaks against these things. They are three, after all, of the so-called seven deadly sins, or more accurately, the seven capital vices, as they were called by medieval theologians. And so we might think, yeah, okay, I know that. I know that from the Bible. Those things are tempting and fun, envy and lust and gluttony. They're fun, but God doesn't like them, so don't do it. Okay, I get it. But the Bible's wisdom is much more subtle and helpful for us than God doesn't like it, so stop it. Look with me at why the wise father warns his son against envy, gluttony, and lust. I want us to see it's not because he wants to deny his son pleasure. It's because he wants to give him pleasure. Why shouldn't he envy sinners in verse 18? It's because they have no future hope. Those who set themselves up against God might prosper for a while. They might succeed in the world by deceitful schemes and get rich quick. But there's no long-term future in it. Instead of looking on them with envy, wishing you could have what they could have, look on them with pity, because you know they won't have it for long. What about the gluttons, the scoffers, and the quaffers of verse 20? Well, they might uh, enjoy rich banquets and fine foods for a while, but verse 21, what happens next? Poverty and rags await. Overindulge on a Sunday night and you will face the consequences on a Monday morning when you can't get up and go to work. Live a life of excess, blow your money and your health on short-term pleasure and you'll face long-term poverty. And what about illicit sex with a prostitute or a wayward woman, which by the way I think is a better translation than wayward wife in verse 27. It might be pleasurable for a time. Solomon says it leads to captivity, to being thrown into a deep pit or a narrow well. Sex is not something to play with. It forms deep bonds with another person. And if that other person is not committed to you, it can cause immense pain. It can lead to the loss of your reputation, the loss, verse 28, of your money and your possessions as to a burglar. 
and ultimately 28, to the breakdown of society, to a world filled with unfaithful, untrustworthy men, which is no good for anyone. So haven't you seen it time and time again in our world? Harvey Weinstein, Bernie Madoff, Boris Becker, Elizabeth Holmes, Sam Bankman-Fried, just to name a few that I found on the internet. Men and women who reached the highest rung of the world's ladder only to come crashing down because of their greed and their lust and their lies. Or see it in the countless ways we see lives around us in our city ruined, in our own families perhaps, ruined by alcohol, by overeating, by pornography, by shady investments and stupid shortcuts. And even if we don't see it in this life, the mention of the fear of the Lord in verse 17 reminds us that a final reckoning with an eternal covenant God stands at the end of a life badly lived. Do you see how this changes things? Solomon's point is not, sin is pleasurable, but God doesn't want you to have pleasure, and he's in charge, so you can't have nice things. No, he's saying, yes, sin is pleasurable, but God wants something better for you. He actually wants you to have more pleasure and longer-lasting pleasure than the world can offer. He wants to keep you from the long-term pain that comes from short-term gain. Another hymn we sing says this, Fading is the worldly pleasure, all its weak pretense and show solid joys and lasting treasure, none but those of Zion know. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it, and I know this is a very overused quote, but it's brilliant. He said this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So let us take this idea back to the rod of discipline. Why do we discipline our children? Why do we cause them short-term pain? Is it because we hate them? Of course not. It's because we love them. We don't give our children pain because we want to give them pain, but because we want to give them pleasure. Every time we say no to our kids, if we're parenting rightly, and we don't very often, but occasionally we get it right. Every time we say no to our kids, we're saying yes to something better. When my children ask for sweets and I say no, have some fruit. It's because long-term health is better than a short-term sugar rush. When my children ask if they can play a video game and I say, no, do your piano practice, it's because long-term skill is better than short-term gratification. When they ask to watch TV and I say, no, read a book, it's because long-term attention to words is better than short-term stimulus by images. Now, let's be clear, I do give my kids sweets and they are allowed to play games and watch TV from time to time. But the choice to discipline, although it brings short-term pain, is a choice for long-term gain. That's why he says in 23 verse 14, punish him with the rod and save his soul from death. It's because we want our children to have joy and pleasure that we punish them. We'll return these themes to these themes in coming weeks, but for now let's consider this. How do you get it? How do you get this eternal treasure? How do we keep saying no to short-term pleasure and keep saying yes to long-term gain? Is it just a case of stealing our wills and screwing up our self-control and saying to each other, look, just stop it? Well, no. 
Did you notice, interspersed with those do nots, the same word come up time and time again in the reading. Again, it's all about the heart. Verse 15, my son, if your heart is wise, then my heart will be glad. Verse 19, listen, my son, and be wise and keep your heart on the right path. Verse 26, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes keep to my ways. Last week in 1 Peter 5, we were hearing about the noise-canceling headphones of God's word, that the lies of this world need to be drowned out by God's life-giving truth. Well, let me tell you the biggest lie the world tells us, the most common, the most plausible, and the most dangerous. You ready? Follow your heart. It's the most common because it's the theme of our education and our entertainment. It's the most plausible because it feels so good and so right to do what we most want to do. But it's the most dangerous because our hearts are so deceitful. If you back up a page to 22 verse 15, just before our section, you'll see that uh, very clearly. It says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child." but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Now, that is not telling us that children are uniquely sinful and silly, but it is pointing us to a deep-seated flaw that's in all of us from birth. We are fallen people with a deep wound, a rift in the core of our very being. David says in Psalm 51 that he was sinful from the moment his mother conceived him. And that is really the only explanation for what we see in this world. Why do perfectly sensible people throw their careers away on a stupid get-rich-quick scheme when they're already rich? Why do we crave the illicit thrills of drugs and drink and sex and power when we know they can't satisfy and they don't last? Why do we disobey our parents from the very earliest age? Why do we have to teach our children to obey, but we never have to teach them how to disobey? Why do we have such trouble listening to the words of God and yet find rebellion against authority so very easy and natural? It's because all of us nurture a sinful heart. And that's why it's not just children, but all of us who need the discipline of the Lord. We might have winced in verse 13 when we were told to discipline our children, but we we might not have noticed because, again, the translation is not as accurate as it could be, that the word in verse 12, translated instruction, is exactly the same word. It's the word discipline again. You see, before the parent is called to discipline their child, we are called to bring our own foolish hearts in from the garden and discipline ourselves, put ourselves under the Lord's discipline. That is why in verse 22, a grown-up son still has to be told to respect his aging mother. That's why in verse 23, a grown-up son with money to spend still has to be told to spend it on truth and not lies. It's because that folly never fully goes away. We never make it. We're never free from the need of God's good word to show us grace and to shape us and to change our hearts. And that is why we must not, above all things, follow our hearts. Instead, as verse 19 literally says, we must lead our hearts. We must not listen to whatever nonsense our hearts tells us we need. We must let God speak to our hearts and tell it the truth. We must keep training our hearts, wrestling them into submission, bringing them back from where they're currently wandering, guard them and discipline them. And how do we do that? By our own efforts? 
No, we do it by bending our ear to the words, to applying our whole bodies to meditation on God's wisdom in the scriptures and to trust him that he knows best and that he can shape us by speaking to us. Why do we do this? Why do we do this a difficult thing? Is it because God wants it, so do it? Well, yes. <laughs> but also because it is the path to joy. Did you notice the repeated motivation in these verses? Why should you discipline your hearts in the book of Proverbs? Because it will make your dad and mum happy. Did you see that? Verse 15, the father says, My heart will be glad if your heart is is sound. Verse 24, the father of a righteous man has great joy. He who has a wise son delights in him. May your father and mother be glad. May she who gave you birth rejoice. Now we might think, so what is the motivation here? Aren't we just replacing God doesn't like it with your mum doesn't like it? Well, let me say first of all, there is something really good and right and wholesome about that motivation. You see, we're such an individualistic culture that we find the idea of doing something because it'll make your dad happy to be really strange. But as we've seen, that's because we belong to that enlightenment way of thinking that says the path to happiness is for every generation to rip everything up and start again. Feels good to do that, doesn't it? Burn the world down and start again. The old people know nothing. But it doesn't end well. It leads to instability. It leads to chaos. It leads to misery. And so doing something just to honour your parents, just because your mum and dad will be pleased, there's something really wise there, whatever age you are, by the way. But I wonder if Solomon has another motivation in mind for his son and for his readers, following his curriculum or whatever stage we're at. Ask yourself this question. What does every parent want for their children? We want our children to be safe and secure and happy, don't we? We want them to flourish. We want them to live good lives. We want them to have hope and a future. We want them to have success and to avoid disaster. And we rejoice when our children have joy. And so again, we find that by calling us to discipline, to the short-term pain administered by loving parents to their child or to the ongoing wrestling of our own hearts into submission, God is calling us to life of long-term gain. The kind of joy and pleasure which if your children were living it, you'd think, oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad they're doing that. The world might offer us all sorts of pleasures. And our heart might lead us to say yes to them, but they are cheap thrills. Fast food and white cider that will leave us with a hangover of regrets. But God wants your good. He wants to give you hope and a future. He wants to give you lasting joy. As we conclude, let's zoom out and place this teaching in the Bible's bigger picture. We've had the, the privilege of studying this book after we've finished the series in 1 Peter. Actually, I've been struck by how similar these two books are, written thousands of years apart in very different stages of, of history. I suppose that shouldn't really surprise us because the same God stands behind us behind both. Remember, Peter too was calling us to the good life. But he he was doing so in the privileged position of knowing the story of Solomon's greatest son, the wisest man who ever lived, Jesus Christ. And Jesus lived out this wisdom perfectly. This man, when he was a child, obeyed his parents. (laughs) Imagine that. As the eternal God, he was their creator and Lord. And he was the only child in history who could say to his parents, I know better than you and be correct. 
and yet he obeyed them. In Luke 2 verse 52, we read that Jesus the child grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. This man, when he was grown, led his own heart when Satan and his own disciples tempted him to disobey. When Satan threw Bible verses at him like a drunkard with a thorn bush to get him to avoid the cross. When Peter rebuked him for daring to suggest he must suffer and die, he stood his ground and chose to walk his father's path. This man described doing the will of God in John's gospel as like food and drink to him. It nourished him. And so this man, on the eve of his death, faced with the strongest temptation to rebel against the will of his father God, had trained his heart to trust in the Lord. And so was able to say, not my will, but yours be done. And so this man is able to speak real truth to us, to be our true apostle, as Hebrews 3 calls him. To communicate to us words of life which have the power to transform our hearts by his spirit. Words which can give us grace for our failings and our folly. And words which can turn us from evil desires and, desires and turn to trusting God and lasting joy, even when the immediate result is short-term pain. You see, Proverbs holds out the promise that God's way is the way to joy, but it's also realistic that the way to long-term gain is short-term pain. And we've seen that in 1 Peter, haven't we? In a fallen world, that short-term pain might go on for what seems like an awfully long time in our experience. In this broken world, very often sinners prosper and saints suffer. That's why the temptation to envy is there. And often God's way is the way of suffering. That's the path Jesus walks, and as we've seen in 1 Peter, we walk in his footsteps. God's way, bending our ear to his word, letting that shape our hearts and nourish our bellies, and then taking words of truth on our lips, it's hard. It's costly. But it's not a path that goes on forever. It's a path where every hardship can be used by God as loving discipline. As Hebrews 12 teaches us, God uses our suffering, among other things, to strip away our trust in this world and have us lean wholly on him. And it's a path which, as 2 Corinthians 4 says, is in the grand scheme of things a light and momentary trouble, which is achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs it all. So not a path that goes on forever. But perhaps more important than that, it's not a path we walk alone. We walk behind the wise son, Jesus, who has gone through the suffering to the joy on the other side. Hebrews 12, verse 12, tells us that Jesus went through the short-term pain, the discipline of his heavenly father, the cross of Calvary, for the joy that was set before him on the other side. And everyone around him called him a fool, but we now look at him and say, that is a truly wise life. Let's pray. Father, we confess that our hearts are bound up with folly that very often we choose the short-term pleasure that we know is bad for us, but we don't seem to be able to resist it. Father, we're sorry. And we thank you that you show us in your word what a truly wise life looks like. Thank you that in the cross of Christ, you give us grace that pays for all our failings and folly. And thank you that as you continue to speak to us by your spirit through your words, you can shape our hearts, nourish our bellies, and put truth on our lips so that we may walk in wisdom. 
Father, keep us particularly from envy, from gluttony, from lust. Help us to trust you that although those things bring short-term pleasure, they bring long-term ruin. And so help us to believe you and to, do, uh, to walk in your son's wise footsteps. And may we help each other as a church family to do that. Help have us grow in wisdom, please, Father, and grow in discipline so that we might uh, walk in Jesus' footsteps more closely and keep offering truth to a, a needy world, a foolish world, until the end.